This is Brian Carney, your host of the Developing Founders podcast. Today, I was lucky enough to have a conversation with an entrepreneur that's actually from my home state of Illinois, and he's been living in Kenya for the past few years after his last corporate job placed him there. Our conversations spanned everything from how business, specifically tech businesses, can help the developing world all the way to how high-tech video games can aid in the world's conservation efforts. So without further ado, let's dive into the podcast. Gotham is the founder of Internet of Elephants, a technology company that has goals of changing the way individuals view, understand, and interact with animals and conservation. He received his degree in computer information systems from Indiana University and had a 20-year career with Accenture, leading IT projects across India, Argentina, Kenya, and the U.S., before making the pivot into tech-enabled social entrepreneurship. Gotham, welcome to the show today. Thanks so much, Brian. I'm really excited to talk a little bit about Internet of Elephants. Doing the research before the show, uh, I have to say I was intrigued. It's definitely unique. I haven't seen many things like this. Uh, and I just kind of want to start with how you got the idea for, for Internet of Elephants and how all of that came about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just first in terms of passion. Despite the fact that, yeah, I spent 20 years working at a large IT consulting company, Accenture, my passion and what I loved was wildlife and animals. Yeah, one of the things that Accenture afforded me was a decent amount of holiday time, you know, not bad pay. And I would use that to travel the world and be with animals, you know, whether it's swimming with whale sharks or seeing mountain gorillas or or, or whatever it happens to be. I really had incredible opportunities that were, you know, that were afforded to me. But those eventually just also started to feel very selfish. You know, the only person that was benefiting was myself. And despite like pretty good understanding and knowledge of this, you know, on the ground situations that existed with all of these animals and, you know, sort of passive sadness, I was the only one that was, you know, that was really benefiting from these experiences. So I always kind of knew that at some point in my life, I wanted to switch and I wanted to do something with my background that was more meaningful to something that I really, you know, that I really cared about and that the macro challenge uh, was much greater than the, you know, sort of the macro challenges that I was addressing at Accenture. So, you know, fast forward a little bit of, you know, eventually got got to this point where I said, okay, you know, I'm living here in Nairobi, which is where Accenture had sent me for, for certain projects. This is the kind of the center of a lot of the conservation work that happens around the world. I've been doing this for 20 years. If I'm not going to do something now, you know, when am I going to do it? Certainly not when I get sent back to Chicago. Uh, so I, yeah, so I quit uh, and decided to uh, decided to get into wildlife conservation without really any idea what that would be. So just from a passion point of view, like why animals and why, you know, such, it's not necessarily opportunistic. It's because that's, you know, that's where my interest was. The, the Internet of Elephants as a concept really came from this idea, you know, at the time that I was thinking about it, Internet of Things, Internet of Things, Internet of Everything, you know, it's kind of all over the place. And I was in this school and Cisco was at this school and Cisco was talking about Internet of Everything. And it was really kind of top of mind and just kind of being from the tech space, I, you know, I knew what it meant. And I really just started thinking if people are connected to each other across the world, if people are connected to their cars, if people are connected to their thermostats, they're connected to their refrigerators, you know, what, what would happen if they were connected 
to animals and, and wildlife in a similar way. How would that change the way people related to what's currently an anonymous orangutan or an anonymous uh, jaguar in Brazil? But now all of a sudden it became, no, no, this is, you know, Ashaya the jaguar or Theo the orangutan. And we're, you know, we're connected in some way. And uh, the internet is, you know, is allowing that to happen. And so that's where internet of elephants was just like, hey, but what if we had an internet of elephants? And what would that mean? And what would that look like? And, and that's really what kind of started that exploration of, okay, what does an internet of elephants look like? And then, yeah, ultimately the, the name was just very catchy and everybody liked it. And so we just named the company that even though, you know, we're sort of wildlife agnostic. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The name's, the name's great. What uh, were some of your first memories of wildlife and going into that? You said it's always been a passion of yours. Was it from a really young age or where did that develop? I grew up in Chicago, which wouldn't necessarily equate to, you know, exposure to a lot of wildlife. But I also grew up in this suburb that had a lot of woods. And so we, you know, as, as six-year-old, you know, as I, I was seven, my sister was five, sort of had these, you know, this kind of glass house. And we would have raccoons come every night. We would have deer in the backyard. We would have squirrels every once in a while. I'd have a snake. We'd have a, you know, a hedgehog. We, we, we had just a variety of animals that would come and we would just get so excited. And we knew at 4.30 p.m. the raccoons were going to come. And every, I mean, we would see a deer, you know, once a week. But every single time we saw it, we, got, we were excited about it. And so, we, weirdly enough, you, you know, it was growing up in the suburbs of Chicago that just kind of gave, gave exposure to animals all the time and, and this clear sense that we liked it. And then I think parents noticed that. Firstly, all kids like animals. And all kids, uh, I mean, that's why all our clothes, our books, our toys, you know, everything is, is animals. So it's not like unique that when you're a seven-year-old, you really love animals. It's just that they were physically there, you know, in front of us all the time. And yeah, I think my parents just kind of nurtured that. And, you know, we probably went on our first safari to go and see animals, maybe when I was 13 or 14 in India. And we didn't really see much, but yeah, the, the allure of it, you know, being out in the jungle, etc., was, was just something that was very attractive. So yeah, it, it really started from that age. And then as time and money allowed, you know, we were, I was just able to expand the experiences that, that I was able to have. Right. Oh, that's, that's interesting. That brings a lot of questions. I guess the first one I kind of want to dive into is with Internet of Elephants, well, first off, I kind of want to know which one of your games is your favorite game. I think that'd be kind of interesting to know. Um, so let's go into that first. <laughs> of those that we've created? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Ooh, well, we're still we're still a pretty young company. We're still a startup. We still haven't entirely actually yet created the games that are totally in my mind. I really, well, I really liked the, the two of the most recent ones that we've created. So one we just launched, which is called Unseen Empire. Mm-hmm. It's not a full throttle game. It's more like a gamified data visualization. And it's all about camera trapping and the science behind camera trapping and everything that you uncover through camera trap technology. And I think, you know, I'm guessing most people would know if you set a camera trap, what that means. But I don't think most people would know the sheer volume of biodiversity and things that it uncovers and the impact of, of actually doing that uncovering, right? So it's like, it's not just this exercise in like finding a bunch of cool animals, but all the things that it, you know, that it actually results in, uh, you know, is stuff that I, I think most people don't know. So 
I think it's a simple experience. You get to see a lot of different uh, animals and very candid photographs. So it's sort of the, even though it was supported by National Geographic, and in some ways it's kind of the anti-National Geographic photographer uh, type of, you know, images because they're all, they're blurry, they're often black and white, they're at night, but they're absolutely fascinating. And so I'm, I'm excited that we were able to create something that really brings that, you know, that brings that to life. The game that we that we launched last year, which which in both of these are intended to grow much in, in scope a lot, was an augmented reality game, and that was all telling the stories of real apes in Borneo and real apes in Congo, really deep, impossible to reach places. Again, that people dedicate their lives to saving and follow very very specific animals with incredible storylines, and you know I think we did a really nice job of bringing that to life in AR so that. You can feel like you're going around looking for orangutans or gorillas in your, you know, in your own living room. Actually, get a little bit physical in the process of doing so, and you know, and kind of get the storyline, uh, you know, the storyline involved in it. So, yeah, very, very, you know, both of those games they have a long way to go to be kind of what the vision for them was. But I think both of them have pushed the boundaries of of how you can do storytelling in the in the conservation space quite significantly. Yeah. So is the the goal with a lot of these to educate a younger demographics? They grow up kind of with that same desire you have to give back in this. Because I can see these games being incredible for one of my nephews. He he just loves animals and he's always playing outside and finding frogs and especially now during the pandemic where he's learning from home, I can see this being a huge part of his science curriculum. So is that kind of the, the goal or do you have stories about that? Each product, we have to be very clear, you know, each product has a slightly different goal or a slightly different demographic that it's trying to reach. In general, our desire is to get to the 18 to 35 year olds or the 18 to 40 year olds. That's what we've set out to do, because in some ways we, we have a feeling, like I said, kids, kids already love animals, but there's a point at which you start to deviate. There's a point at which your attention gets taken somewhere else. There's a point at which, you know, which other things start to, to take away from the fact that you had a natural love and desire for, you know, for animals to be protected and for, you know, for animals to thrive. So I, I think that there's lots of different mediums that are out there. They're doing a great job of keeping you know, young kids engaged with, with wildlife and with, with animals. And so it's like, okay, there's some people that are doing a really good job with that. What are people not doing a really good job with is, okay, but when you turn 13 or 14, when you're 18, when you're 24, have you lost that feeling? Or have you just lost the opportunity to engage with it? Because now there's, there's, you know, either you're going to, you jump from the very kiddie oriented stuff and you either jump directly into National Geographic and wildlife documentaries, or you just, kind of forget about it until you make enough money and then you go on safari or something. Maybe you take your kids to the zoo. So that's where it's like, okay, but that's maybe where the attention is needed. Or maybe that's where we have the best opportunity, you know, to, to address it. Having said that, so all our products are branded, marketed, designed visually for the 18 to 35, 18 to 40 age group. But we also knew that content-wise, there's nothing that we're doing that wouldn't be attractive to kids. Whereas if we made it all very cartoony and all very childlike, yes, you know, yeah, fine, we'll get the kids, but we'll definitely not get, you know, we'll definitely not get the older crowd. And, and that's kind of what we're at, what, that's what we see is happening. So we are, yeah, we are seeing plenty of kids in the sort of the 11 to 12, or sorry, 11 to, to, to 13 
range that are reacting really well to Unseen Empire. That's great with us because often what they're doing is they're showing it to their parents and the parents are getting a little bit addicted and parents are also perfectly happy that they're, you know, that their kid is spending all this time on a game, but in the process, they're actually getting a little bit more learning in the, in the science space. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a, a great way to learn because it's interactive and there's so many people that it's difficult to learn just by reading a book or watching a show, but if they interact, it really, it really sticks. That's, that's cool. That's a neat demographic. You know, one of the things, finding the right balance, if you promote it as an educational game, now you got trouble. You know, again, depending on how you're trying to promote it and who you're trying to, like, if you're trying to get it in front of teachers, we say this is an educational game. If we, you know, if we're trying to get it in front of parents, we're saying it's an educational, but if we're trying to get it in front of a 23 year old, you know, who may, who may have an interest in, in IDing animals and kind of knowing this stuff. But if you were to tell them it's an educational game, they're like, yeah, but I don't, I don't want an education. So yeah, we, we have seen that there's this very delicate balance between all the things that it is and how you position it and how you, you know, how you put it out into the market. Again, if you say this is a game about saving the planet, there's a certain set of people that that's really going to attract. And then there's this whole other set of people who are going to be like, yeah, that's not for me. It's not that I don't want to save the planet, but I'm playing a game. I don't necessarily need to save the planet while I'm playing the game. And we haven't yet figured out exactly how to get that you know, balance right, but that's where knowing who's your target audience and then leaning into that target audience is super, super, is super important. And, you know, I mean, marketing, we've certainly learned that marketing is 80% of this and 80% of what we do is not on the marketing side of things. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. So how, one question I was, I was wondering when I was looking through all of this is how do you go about picking these specific animals because there's a handful that yeah I, I can definitely see how that would be really attractive that would be a little bit more viral because it's the animals we talk about more is that kind of what you use or is it what can have the most impact what's the kind of decision matrix there look some of it is opportunistic you know, there's an opportunity that exists or there's some money that exists or there's an organization that's interested in something. And then we look at it and we say like, okay, can we do something with the content, you know, that you've got? Like when you play Wildiverse, the ambassadors are the orangutan, the gibbon, the lowland gorilla and the chimpanzee. Yeah. Those are animals, the gibbon, not so much, but the other three, they're very well-known animals. They're the face of of locations they're the face of conservation you know pe people know them when you go to the zoo that's the animal that you want to see and so we do use certain more charismatic you know animals in in terms of the you know in terms of the public eye you know to attract people in but then once you're you know once you're in the experience once you're in the game it's not necessarily only about you know only about those particular characters or those particular habitats so the same thing with southeast asia or the Un unseen empire that entire camera trap study was about clouded leopards. Clouded leopards, I mean, that, you know, maybe you've never heard of a clouded leopard, but it still evokes, uh, you know, it evokes something. A cloud, you know, leopard is, is very well known and it's a clouded leopard. And so, you know, you just, you don't even know what this thing looks like. But ultimately, when you're in it, you see 235 different species from, you know, like from a moon rat to pheasants to elephants to, to nine different types of porcupine. 
And so we often will look at the, the animals and, and we'll see like, okay, how can these animals help attract audiences, but into a much deeper storyline, you know, around much more than just, you know, that particular, particular animal. We used to do a lot more stuff with augmented reality. And, you know, we've, we've made kind of AR apps and AR toys that, of course, feature very well-known animals, except maybe the pangolin. You know, I would love to do something where we just do an entire product that's augmented reality frogs. Like, you know, let's get 100 most endangered frogs and let's recreate, you know, let's recreate them and let's let you hold them in your hand and let's let you set them up on your counter and do a frog chorus and, you know, create your own frog symphonies. And yeah, so I have some pet projects and I just talked with somebody at an aquarium and they want to do something on sort of all the microorganisms, like the things that are this, you know, smaller than the size of your fingernail, where if you blow it up, they're spectacular looking. But nobody would ever kind of think about, you know, trying to do any public engagement around microorganisms in the sea. So there's definitely like those things come up and I'm very attracted to them. But I've, I've, yeah, we do always got to find that balance between, okay, like how do I tell a story behind this that is going to get people in? And once people are in, you know, I feel pretty comfortable that they'll enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. That would be a really interesting project with the the microorganisms because man, some of those just look like sea monsters. It's like being in outer space. Yeah. Yeah. And so when, when I was watching a video that she was showing me of all these organisms kind of passing you by and like this is like playing space invaders or something you know it really really feels like that but these are real things with with interesting you know interesting uh, storylines you know behind them we we can do something with this but yeah but try going out and trying to find money to uh you know, you know make a game about microorganisms in the sea that it's, it's it's not as easy as saying like hey let's do something about elephants so yeah it's a it's a it's a kind of a balance between opportunistic and, and kind of what we what we would really love to do yeah okay that that makes a lot of sense one thing i was wondering uh, looking through this is how do you kind of straddle that line between having people engage in the technology and engage in actual wildlife as well because there's definitely a way to do both i just really want to know kind of how you view that well one is there is absolutely nothing that takes the place of just being there i i mean you don't have to be in the bornean rainforest you can just be in a chicago forest preserve right and i still think that what you gain from being in a chicago forest preserve active you know i don't mean just you know you know sitting and having beers and i mean like you're you know you're kind of actively involved in the forest preserve you know, it's hard for me to say that I think, yeah, but playing one of our games could be more beneficial than that. I don't, I don't actually think that. But I also know that the reality of the situation is, is that you can't always be in the forest preserve. You can't just pick up and go to Borneo or go on safari for, you know, for various reasons. But that doesn't mean that you should then be disconnected from it, right? And so even like we, we talk with zoos and we talk with them and we're like, okay, I don't want to create anything and leave aside my opinion on zoos and other people's opinions on zoos. If you're at the zoo, I want you looking at the animals, right? Because these animals are caged and well, not necessarily caged, but they're not living their best life necessarily. And so the worst thing that I would want is that, he, that they're doing that and nobody is actually, you know, is looking at them because they're looking at their phone. So when, when I do talk with zoos about like, what can we do? It's always about how can people still stay engaged with the zoo engage with the animals when they're not at the zoo. And so, yeah, that, I mean, that's kind of how I think about technology is not, I don't want you using your phone when you're in the forest preserve necessarily. There are some neat apps out there like iNaturalist, which I think is spectacular. But in general, 
I want you uh, disengaging from technology. But when you're not, and you're going to be engaging with tech anyhow, why not be engaging with tech content where the stories, where the participation, et cetera, is all, you know, is all around wildlife and, and the planet? Yeah, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I can, I can definitely see that. A little bit earlier, you spoke a little bit about how raising money for certain projects is hard, but it's a little bit easier for others. But I imagine that it's, it's pretty difficult for most of them because raising money for traditional conservation still isn't very easy. So how have you, you gone about that, raising funds for these projects? I mean, we're a for-profit entity. Yeah? The whole intention when I started it was to be a for-profit, was to hopefully you know, make very popular content and games, etc., make a lot of money, give most of that money back to the conservation organizations that are our partners, and absolutely no problem at all that stakeholders and shareholders, uh, so long as they're bought into you know, kind of the mission and the charter, you know, take a, you know, take a little bit of a, a cut of it. I also really felt that the mentality as a for-profit would help us. Yeah. So this mentality of like, we've got to think of the customer first. Uh, we've got to figure out how to put products in their hands that meet their needs, that meet their pain points, that meet create a value proposition for our customers, as opposed to trying to think about like, how can they do something for, for us? And so, I, you know, that's why we, we set it up as a, as a for-profit. The reality is, is that, yeah, generating revenue directly from the products that we create. There are routes and avenues to that, but we haven't cracked it yet. We've cracked it a little bit, but not nearly enough. And so we, we do have to go out and either get projects commissioned or basically get, you know, get grants to do, to do work, to build up our portfolio, to build up our credibility, to build up a body of work, which will then make it easier for us to kind of go the more traditional route of, of, you know, of generating revenue as a for-profit institution. Yeah, it's been really, I mean, yeah, it has been really hard. And I think it's because we sort of straddle this world where we're not attractive to a VC. Game companies are not 100% sure, you know, they're like, okay, yeah, we, you know, we get it from a, from a content standpoint, but you're not really, a, you know, you, you, you don't have experience making games. That's not your background. You know, that's not necessarily what you've, you've got. So yeah, maybe, but if you, you know, you're going to have to show us a lot before, you know, before we buy in. Impact investors know nothing about making games and making so so from an impactor point of view, impact investor point of view, it's all like, well, you know, games are a hit business and you know the likelihood of success is very low. We don't know anything about it. And but if you go by the adage invest in what you know, well, we don't know anything about games. The conservation sector, you know, they can give you grants. They're not gonna, you know, they're not gonna invest. But it's also very it's very scary and very new for them. So if you were to go to them and say, Hey, let's look, let's make a, a wildlife documentary. Well, maybe they'll still say no, but they understand it. It's like, okay, yeah, I know what I'm getting. I'm getting a film. The film's going to be about this. I've seen a thousand wildlife documentaries. It's very easy for me to understand. So I can make an educated decision about whether I say yes or no. But when you're talking about games and completely different you know, new mediums, the myths and the stigmas that kind of ex- exist really, really get in the way. And so we have a value proposition for everybody that we could potentially get money from, but not enough. For any of them, in you know, in particular. So yeah, we, I mean, yeah, we have. Uh, it's not been easy. We we do manage, but it's uh, you know, it's not it's not been easy. So we're we're still trying to zero in. We understand what our value proposition is to the to, to wildlife conservation. I think I'm very clear about that. Really, when I look at our documentation from five years ago and I look at what we say today, we say the same thing. So we've really stayed true there. 
what is our value proposition in terms of raising investment, in terms of you know getting commissions, and sort of in terms of getting partnerships? That's something that's just kind of continuously evolving as we learn and as we as we realize, like, oh, this is maybe this is the route, maybe this is the route. It's still, yeah, that's that's an iter- iterative process for us. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That's interesting. When you were deciding whether this should be a for-profit or a non-profit, I'm sure a lot of thought went into that. Does it go further than just what you are thinking the customer would want? Because nonprofits can have that as well. They don't always. But what else was part of that decision? I'd be interested in hearing how you went about that. Rightly or wrongly, my feeling was that the upside of being a for-profit was greater than the upside mm-hmm. of being a nonprofit. The floor of being a for-profit was far lower than the floor of being a nonprofit, right? So like, I think, I mean, you're not gonna be able to see this on a podcast, but I think a nonprofit, you know, we felt like we're pretty much guaranteed to operate in this range. Uh, whereas with a for-profit, you know, it was, it was this range. And again, it's like, okay, I mean, I'm, you know, at the time I was 46 years old or 45 years old. Why am I going to bother with something that doesn't have sort of potentially infinite upside? And yeah, whether we achieve it or not is a different story. And it's, you know, some of that's on me, some of that's on luck, some of that's on circumstance, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that might as well be what I go for. And then, yeah, sure. Maybe after X period of time, if you determine you can't do it. Okay, fine. We'll go ahead and we'll start a nonprofit and we'll we'll go the traditional routes and we'll have a bunch of credibility. But I, I always just kind of felt that the upside was going to be much uh, lower. But getting back to what I said earlier, I also just felt that, and and this is why I thought the upside was higher. Yeah, I just think that the mentality that I wanted to have behind this was very much driven around. You know, if I need to provide services back to a customer to make a successful business how would I do that? Right? Like, how would I do it? And if I figure that out, you know, well, then, then we, we, you know, we can have tremendous success in this space. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And for, for profit corporations get a bad rep, many of it very deservedly. <laughs> but there are a lot of really good ones, too, that have done some some pretty neat things. You look at what well, Patagonia, they have great morals. You look at what Tesla has done for electric cars. I mean, that and you can argue the the efficacy of some things that Tesla has done, but they pretty much single-handedly made electric vehicles plausible. So yeah, that that's interesting. So okay, I understand there's a lot of controversy around Google, Facebook, etc. Right? But if you're sitting here in Nairobi and you see the opportunities that the existence of Google and the existence of Facebook create for people that would otherwise never have those opportunities, Mm. it's pretty significant. And and I'm not saying that they set out to do that, but yeah, it's, it's, it's remarkable. So now I I have, you know, a little barbershop, you know, I can have essentially, you know, a free place for people to come. I don't have to set up a web, I don't have to pay for that. Like, boom, I've, I've got a place that people go and the number of businesses that then, you know, kind of spring up around that. And again, I haven't studied this to be able to, to, to weigh the pros and cons. But if I just look at kind of the positive impacts that tech has had where I live, I think that it's it's phenomenal. And then if I think, well, what if Google started off as a nonprofit, you know, would the same things have been possible? I, I don't know the answer to that. 
But I suspect no. I suspect that their capacity to constantly think about the customer, their mentality around constant innovation to solve, you know, various problems that the that the world has has had, you know, that is what allows them to, you know, to have the positive impacts that they do in other places. I don't know, again, it is not necessarily my area of expertise, but it, it just feels to me like, yeah, what if Facebook was a nonprofit? What if Google was a nonprofit? They would have done fine, but I don't, you know, I don't think the upside of what they do would have been nearly as significant. Perhaps the downside of what they do would also not have been as significant, but I try and think more in terms of, you know, what, what are the upsides of all these things? Yeah, that I can definitely see that. I've, I've spent a fair amount of time in Uganda, kind of on the border right by Uganda, uh, Rwanda and Congo right there. And yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, the first time I went, the technology that was there compared to the second time I went only three years later was just, it was astounding. And how I saw that able to help people with things that honestly, a little bit more technologically advanced than some things we were doing in the States or I saw anywhere else. Uh, the idea of mobile money was there how long ago? And uh, it's only just reaching here. And that's because, man, what it could do for populations that might not have a bank right there was just, it was incredible. And that, you're right, I don't know if that would have happened if, if that same company had been a nonprofit, possibly, but probably not at the scale. No, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. It wouldn't have been possible. And yeah, and so M-Pesa is, you know, it's in Kenya is the poster child for, you know, kind of talking about some of these things that happened because, you know, Safaricom had the had the network, it had the reach, it had the capacity to kind of create the infrastructure to, you know, to allow that to happen. And, and it, it is it's changed everything here in terms of how anybody and everybody can transact. And, and yeah, now they've created a nonprofit uh, foundation, which is the Mpesa Foundation, you know, based on the interest that they make on that money. But yeah, it would, it would, it would, not, have, it would not have happened otherwise. Right. Yeah, that's, that's true. Well, we're running up a little bit on time. So I want to transition to, to some of the last questions that we ask every guest that comes on. The first one that I always think is interesting is your favorite business book, or in this case, conservation book or wildlife book. I, I would be interested in those recommendations as well. <laughs> yeah, on the on the business book side of things, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not a great learner from books. I want to talk with somebody. I want to ask quite like what books do is they raise more questions from. So I'll, I'll read something. I'm like, oh, this is an interesting point. I've got a question. And then I get frustrated that, you know, that I can't ask the question. And I'm just not, I, I, I just don't want to then just go down this rabbit hole of research. Like, I just want to talk with somebody. And so I really like, I mean, I like the Lean Startup because I aspire to the things that he writes about. And I don't know if it's a great book or well-written or, or anything. I aspire to the, and I aspire and believe in the things that he says. I don't know that he taught me well how to, how to do those things. I, I'm, I'm going to do much better if I go to a class or I, I talk with someone. But, you know, I'll go ahead and say that. As far as, yeah, as far as wildlife writing or wildlife books, like I mean, anything that David Quammen writes, he's, a, he's an incredible writer on wildlife I enjoy. And there was, there was a couple years ago, a book called Where the Animals Go. And it's, uh, it's essentially 50 data visualizations uh, based on animal movement, uh, based on GPS movements of animals. And so it's just 50 stories of, of animals which is exactly what we do, except, you know, they just did it, they did it in book form and they did a beautiful, beautiful job of it. And so, yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the book that anybody that I'm talking about, talking with in the sector 
and I talk about what we do. I'm like, yeah, just imagine that book, but imagine that as a game or imagine that, you know, as animated. So that, you know, that's, that's one that I'd recommend for sure. Okay. I'll have to check that out. I also have a fascination with wildlife. I grew up camping and, and in the woods and all that type of stuff. The one that I read most recently, it was, I think by, can't remember the person's name. He's a doctor in England and it was about the evolution of wolves to dogs. And it really went into the science behind it. And it was so good. Uh, it was a fascinating book. Send me, send me the name of that yeah. when, you, yeah. when you think about it. Yeah, it definitely will. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I have plenty. But yeah, you asked for one that's the first. I mean, in fact, it's just sitting here on my shelf. I was like, okay, yeah, that one. But happy to send you a, a, a bigger list. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to look through some of those. And then the second question we have that I ask is, what is one hobby that you have that many people might not think you have? I play ice hockey. So not, not surprising. Well, I'm of Indian descent. There's no Indians that play ice hockey. So that's one reason why, you know, many people wouldn't, you know, expect it. Certainly growing up in Chicago, it's not surprising. But yeah, I did, you know, I did, you know, in Argentina, I was on a roller hockey, a serious roller hockey team. And then when I got to Kenya, it's like, okay, well, my hockey days are, you know, they're over. And then I literally at day three that I was here, I saw some Facebook post about, you know, like, let's, you know, let's go into the ice rink and playing ice hockey. And so there's this rectangular rink in a hotel. It's so bizarre. It's a rectangle, it's a rectangular rink. There's rubber penguins, you know, as goalies. And then it's just because there's a big expat community here. There's Canadians, Slovaks, Americans, and now a lot of Kenyans you know, that are playing ice hockey on this, uh, you know, on this funny rink, there's tournaments. I haven't played in, a, in, in maybe two years, but yeah, for like the first six or seven years that I was here in, in Nairobi on the equator. Uh, yeah, I was, I was playing, you know, I was playing ice hockey once, uh, uh, once a week. So yeah, I think it's, it's many reasons why people wouldn't expect that of me, but uh, it's something I love doing when I can. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Hockey is such a fun sport to watch. I never, never was able to play it. I can't really skate at all, <laughs> which is a barrier. No, that's that's a limiting factor. You could try field hockey. Field hockey's yeah, yeah. It's not it's not interesting. <laughs> it's not the same as the original. <laughs> oh, yeah, my wife, don't let don't let my wife hear that she plays. But yeah, yeah, it's not. Uh... Here we go. <laughs> we can go into the the third question then, which for this we'll tweak it a little bit as well. Which is who do you look up to in the conservation or technology movements who do you aspire to try to make that type of impact yeah well i mean the answers feel so cliche so i'm trying i'm trying to think of like yeah okay david attenborough jane goodall blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know i i actually i'm not necessarily going to name names because there's too many to name but having spent time you know in india and now having spent time in kenya it's not a good career choice to get into conservation. Yeah. And it's not a choice that generally your parents would be super excited about or super happy about because it's like, yeah, you know, we've been struggling our whole lives. We put you through this education and now you're telling me you're going to get into, into conservation and you're going to be out in the middle of nowhere and you're going to be making nothing. And so anytime I see somebody and maybe this is unfair of me to say, I haven't thought about it enough, but anytime that I see young people in Kenya or, you know, or in India or Tanzania or Rwanda or wherever I am, and they're young, you know, they're in their you know, low twenties, mid twenties, and they're just absolutely dedicated 
to the research that they're doing to, you know, even if it's in tourism, if they're a bird expert, if they're an insect expert, I have a lot of admiration because I know how easy it would be, you know, to do something else, you know, to, to make money in a you know, different way to perhaps even make money, you know, doing yeah. the opposite. And so I always, yeah, I get a little bit uh, emotional when I see, you know, young people kind of getting into conservation, especially when it's like obscure things like not obscure, but things like, you know, studying insects or just being a bird expert. And I'm like, God, that's just fantastic. And yeah, I, I hope that I can have the same passion and be willing to take the same risks that I perceive that, you know, you've taken to do, you know, to do what you're doing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Anyone who gets to the level that they're studying wildlife in any form could have gotten to that same level in something that could make them a lot of money. Um, it takes a lot of effort. So that that makes sense. And, and you know, sometimes, okay, there's no more or less impressive necessary than if you're from the US or Europe or something and, and, and doing this, you know, doing the same thing. But I think the pressures here to survive the, you know, the other opportunity that exists. Yeah, maybe it's more. So yeah, again, right or wrong, I, I gravitate a lot to a number of these people that I've had the pleasure and privilege of meeting. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Okay, well, we can go into the, the next question which is what is your first memory of usually it's your first memory of money but this one we're going to tweak it a little bit to do your first memory of wildlife that you saw growing up the very first one kind of the emotion around that the first memory that i think i have is of riding a giant turtle in south dakota somewhere when i was three wow but I'm not 100% sure if that's truly the first memory I have or I've seen a picture of it. And so I think that I remember it. But I sort of feel like I, I remember sitting on that turtle and seeing my dad. Wow. Yeah, and I'm at some weird reptile park in South. I mean, I'm sure somebody knows what I'm talking about. So that's my first recollection of, quote unquote, wildlife or, you know, of, of, of animals. But otherwise, yeah, otherwise, it's the first time a raccoon came to our house. So I grew up in, a, you know, when I was really young, up till age six, I grew up in a suburb where we didn't see, it was a typical subdivision. You didn't see any animal. I mean, I don't know, maybe there was a rabbit or something, but, but yeah, you saw squirrels on trees. But when a raccoon came to our door, for, you know, right after we moved into this new house in a town called Riverwoods, like, yeah, that's, that was just the greatest. And we were so excited. We were so excited and we were trying to feed it. And uh, yeah, it was that one I won't forget. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. I uh, definitely did not expect the first memory to be writing a, a turtle. That's, <laughs> that's <laughs> well, <yeah>. awesome. <laughs> like I said, my, my wife always says, like, you know, I, we, she thinks that sometimes our memories are formed just by looking at the photograph. Like, we, we remember the photograph. We don't actually remember the memory. And I don't know if I believe her, but when I think about, when I think about the turtle thing, I'm like, ah, but I was three. Like, what could I really remember? But I think I really remember it. But, uh, yeah, it might be remember but either way i was there on that turtle so it might have been my right. first wildlife experience whether i remember it or not oh yeah you should definitely go with that one that's that's fascinating yeah. <laughs> great well then the final question that i can can let you get back to your day um is what is your favorite quote um and it can be on anything just a quote that's yeah. memorable to you yeah there's uh, there's two sort of contradictory quotes that are about the same topic uh-huh so one is, there's a quote that I love, which is, God have mercy on the man who doubts what he's sure of. Mm -hmm. And 
I mean, I've heard it in a Bruce Springsteen song. I don't know if Bruce Springsteen wrote it or if he got it from someone else. I've never found it anywhere else. So I'm going to say that it's by Bruce Springsteen from a song called Brilliant Disguise. And contextually, it's about relationships. But I relate to this idea of like of being positive about something and then doubting it and the difficulty of kind of always doubting things that you think that you're, you're, you're sure of. So I think, I, think, I think it's a great, I think it's a, it's one that I think applies to a lot of my life. But then conversely, and again, I have no idea who says it, but there's a buddy of mine who says it all the time, always with a, you know, kind of a shit eating grin on his face, which is <laughs> often wrong, never in doubt, uh-huh. which is, which is his sort of philosophy on how he says stuff. He's like, yeah, I'm often, you know, Right. Like you can be wrong, but just, you know, if you say stuff with enough confidence and never be a doubt about it, that's, and, and I think like, okay, I don't necessarily, you know, I don't necessarily want to be on, on that total end of the spectrum, but it wouldn't be bad for me to take a little bit more of that attitude, yeah. you know, in a role of, a, of, of an entrepreneur is like, yeah, I don't have a problem if I'm wrong, but, but what I should be is just kind of always just fully confident that I'm not. And yeah, so I think both of those deal with kind of doubt and different perspectives on on, on, on doubt. But I, I like those quotes a lot. Yeah, I'm uh, going to have to use that that last one. That that's interesting. I like that a lot. <laughs> especially especially when you're proven wrong. It's just like yeah, you know, often wrong, never in doubt. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Well, Gotham, thank you for your time today. This has been a really interesting conversation. I love diving into the project behind Internet of Elephants. Where can I send the audience um, to learn a little bit more about your work? Sure. Internetofelephants.com. Perfect. I'll have that in the show notes. And uh, yeah, again, it was great, great chatting with you. If you ever need anything, let me know. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Brian. Thank you. As always, thank you for joining in our conversation. If you have any recommendations on guests for the show or any comments on this episode, or if you would like to be on the show yourself, email me at podcast at studentsofbusiness.com. To get our show notes and to be alerted on the release of new episodes, hit that subscribe or follow button in your favorite podcast player or go to developingfounders.com and subscribe to our email list. Thanks for joining and I'll see you next week.